Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Stephen Wallace. Steve is the founder and CEO of the Oman Hene Cocoa Bean Company, the first company to sustain exports of premium chocolate manufactured entirely in Africa and credited with producing the world's first single-origin chocolate bar in 1994. Wallace often speaks on economic development, cross-cultural issues, and the challenges of starting a gourmet food business in Africa. On his first appearance on the podcast, we talked about his book, Abroni and the Chocolate Factory, an unlikely story of globalization and Ghana's first gourmet chocolate bar. Today, he returns to talk with me a little bit about his experience with tariffs and how they affect international trade and the economy. I give you Stephen Wallace. Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Scott. So we talked uh, several months ago about your book, Abroni and the Chocolate Factory. You are indeed the first person that ever made that has the, has a chocolate company that where the chocolate, right, is completely like all this stuff is coming from Ghana. And in 1994, right, you you produced the world's first single origin chocolate bar, right? Right, right. To, to, to my knowledge, we were the very first to do bean to bar. Uh, not only bean to bar, but one then manufactured entirely at origin where the beans were grown. Is there anybody looking to knock you off that hill? Oh, yes. I'm sure there are. Um, it's gotten crowded. So what do you have in the U.S. now? I think there's about 250 bean to bar manufacturers, but they're just importing beans. Um, I, mean, I shouldn't say just because it's there. So they're importing beans into the U.S., so the beans have to come from some tropical country. They're doing the value add here in the U.S. Um, and there's, you know, maybe a handful of people at various origin countries um, trying to do this as well. And probably Ecuador has been the most successful um, that I've seen that has bean to bar chocolate in a country, Ecuador, that in this case actually does um, grow cocoa it, itself indigenously. So there's 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 some people trying to knock me off, but right now are are you king of the hill in the bean to bar single origin? Oh, um, I, I'd like to think so, but the minute you say that kind of stuff, it comes up and spooks you. So uh, uh, maybe there's a lot of room on this hill, and I'd like to say I'm on the summit of the hill, but there are others there are others that are are, are making their way up the mountain here. So I want to ask you some, you know, some practical questions about international business, because you're somebody that has successfully opened up a business in Ghana and developing country. You, you, you have a lifetime in international business. Your book, which, which if our listeners have not gotten it yet, is great. A Brony in the Chocolate Factory, an unlikely story of globalization and Ghana's first gourmet chocolate bar, which we talked about last time. I just want to ask you some questions. Everybody's talking over the past few months about tariffs and global trade. And you're a guy that has lived your life in global trade. So I, a, a listener actually actually suggested, which was a great idea, I wanted to hear your thoughts on, on tariffs and global trade. And we're, it seems like we're entering into a phase in the Trump administration where 
one of the few things we had relative bipartisan consensus on, with some exceptions, but it's this idea that, hey, free trade and a global marketplace was a, was sort of, in general, the way to go, that it seemed to be better on the whole for the world, for, for workers in general, and for global relations. I mean, people that trade together tend to fight less together and that sort of thing. So this is is being this consensus being challenged what do you make of that and and, and does it have any impact on on you i mean because you know i mean as someone who's importing things into various countries well and and scott we're we're both importing and exporting so i'm seeing um i'm seeing it from many sides but i think um it's true globalism is is changed in meaning if you, if we go back you know briefly to post world war 2 in the marshall plan marshall plan was globalism writ large and i think for for at least half a century it was considered a good thing it helped our economy um we did a lot of exporting of capital goods to europe to help rebuild europe we then were really instrumental through the marshall plan in international trade of creating a vibrant in wealthy Europe that became trading partners with us. And we've maintained, uh, you know, most importantly, a peaceful um, world for, for a long time. Um, yes, there was a Cold War, but it was a Cold War and not a hot war um, in, in Europe and with this old Soviet Union. And now um, globalism has been this shorthand for exploitation of labor in all countries around the world, but especially in the U.S. and really in the last couple of years, the, the number of job losses that people attribute to globalism, to going to, to cheap labor countries, seems to have increased. And, and we have our, our political um, you know, situation we have now be, because of it. Uh, so we face it in a couple of ways. We, we, you know, for example, we export to the country of Japan and have for a number of years. We face a 34% tariff to get in. So they take the price of our our tins of hot cocoa, which is one of our, our leading exports into Japan, and they take not only the cost of our product, but the shipping to get it from Ghana and then to the U.S. and the U.S. into Japan, that's tacked onto it. And then they add 34% to, to both the cost of the product and the cost of the transit. The transportation. Yeah, is that parts. because there's Japanese cocoa they're protecting? I mean, what 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 is well, what's what's the motivation for that tariff? Well, this is one of the things that's that's kind of curious. I don't think it's protecting any. There's no indigenous cocoa growing in Japan. Full stop. There's none. So there's not an indigenous cocoa bean growing or cocoa farmers they're trying to protect. There are people that process cocoa companies that process cocoa, but they're importing the cocoa from all around the world. So I, we're not really threatening a huge amount of jobs. And at 34%, that tariff is really makes our product, um, I won't say uh, virtually unsellable. We are at the very top of the market. So we sell and we've done well there for almost two decades, but it's a small niche of the market at the very top end because we're, we're very expensive compared to our competitors. Um, so it's domestic Japanese cocoa processing companies that I suppose are the beneficiaries of this tariff regime. Um, I, so, you know, we see, we see the frustrations of it from that aspect. And as far as importing into the U.S., um, you know, there isn't a domestic cocoa industry, you know, cocoa growing in the contiguous United States. There's some small cocoa being grown, I understand, uh, in Hawaii, but I'm not even sure it's in commercial quantities. Um, so, uh, 
you know, I think the, the highest tariff we face is in our exports into places like Japan. So we, we see this, and, and I think there's a, um, um, you know, tariffs are bought, brought about largely because it's trying to protect a short-term economic interest. And, and you had mentioned that I think people believe, in general, global trade on balance is a good thing. And, and it is. And economists will tell you it creates wealth. But in the short term, and depending who you're looking at, there are, you know, and I hate to use the phrase because it sounds like a schoolyard um, sort of chant, there there are winners and losers. And in the short term, there's some people that are, are dispossessed. And I think that's what um, or displaced. And that's what tariffs are, are trying to address. And, and maybe those particular demographics are in a very key con- congressional district or an electoral district and something like this. And so they became, they, they sort of have outsized importance that can, you know, overwhelm the other generalized benefits of, of international trade. So it's interesting with, with the recent debate about Trump's trade policy, it came out that that the I think the UK and Canada the average tariff rate is about three to three point one percent and ours is like two point seven which is which is not I mean it it's lower but not massively lower and and it seems that what happens right is with these small in general tariffs is that right you do have special interest in certain industries that you can't just dislodge somehow right and so a particular Senate seat or a particular congressional interest where in general we're trying for free trade but. On, on certain levels, you just can't shake certain lobbies loose, right? So this is why you have these 3% on average or 2.7, which probably includes lots of 0% and, lot, and some 35% and things like that, right? Oh, quite, quite. Yeah, probably does. So listen, let me share, share a funny story because I, I had a chance to sit with a um, a Canadian council general. So the Cana- the Canadians have consulates, council generals in, I'm going to guess, like a dozen U.S. cities because it's our largest trading partner virtually um if not if not full stop our largest trading council and this gentleman he was a uh, career diplomat so he wasn't a political appointee and he had worked for the better part of 10 years in the midpoint of his career on negotiating the nafta trade agreement and he was maybe the what was fascinating to me was how much work I said, you know, and I asked him how much work goes into creating something like NAFTA, which, which, you know, we're trying to, if not renegotiate, I mean, originally we were trying to get rid of it altogether. And now maybe it looks like we're trying to renegotiate. And he says, here's what it looks like. You know, we go to a hotel, a big convention center in, in every room, there's content specialists. So there's someone from the U S who's a, an expert on, on hogs in pork bellies. And then there's the Canadian specialist that's maybe in pork processing and pork bellies. And they have reams of data, those old sort of fan-folded computer forms with the number of jobs that are gained or lost, the, the total number of incomes gained or lost, and the effect on the GDP up or down. And they sort of run from room to room. You, you've got these content specialists dealing with data. So the, I think the first important thing to realize is these things aren't who's the better negotiator. I mean, who can sort of slam their fist on the table and drive a harder bargain? It's people who are dealing with data. And so you look at it and say, you're going to gain 4% here on maybe the growing up, you know, the, the production of hogs and that we're going to process them in our country. So we're going to, we're going to gain something there. And we look at each other and we run back and forth and say, okay, you're going to lose 2% here, but you're going to gain 3% there. And you cut the deal. 
And then you maybe run down the hall and say, um, you know, here's a tourist sector where we just concluded something on pork. How about tourism or soybeans or the manufacture of canoes? And, and it's sort of these very arcane and very discrete little subsets of each economy. And they've been quantified um, almost to death. And there's really no dispute among the two sides about is it a 2%, is it going to hurt us 2% or be a positive or a negative. But it's just at the end of the day, are we going to give up on canoes and gain on, on raccoon furs or are we going to give up on soybeans and gain on high fructose corn syrup? And so I think what I found fascinating is the amount of work that really smart people and content specialist people, not politicians, but content specialists spent in crafting these. And I said, think the, you know, what I'd love people to realize is, you know, we throw these out at our peril. We benefited as much as we gave up. And I don't think there's a wholesale sense that either side out negotiated the other. Just didn't happen. These are pretty smart people that looked at the same sets of data about which there was very little, if no dispute. And over the course of, you know, the better part of a decade, crafted this very complicated trade agreement that seems to have benefited both economies writ large. And this is why these these tariff rates, right, that we see are marginally different, right? They're not drastically, I guess it's because these things are so, are negotiated ad nauseum with all these experts. It's why we don't have 10 to 2% or something like that, right? I mean, why these things are pretty close. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, um, and I almost wonder if this is a... You know, I don't think it's the cause, it's the free trade necessarily of, um, of um, I mean, I think there's these short-term displacements, but I think it has to do with, um, you know, changing economies. I think the, the wealth nowadays, I mean, the, the economy we have today is not the economy of my parents or of my grandparents, which um, depended largely on raw materials and I think traditional manufacturing. Um, the new economy is concentrated more on innovative products and services. And I think the raw materials are creativity, knowledge is a raw material, and information. And so these are the most powerful generators of economic activity going forward. Um, now, having said that, there's people in, in quote-unquote old economy industries that are very important. They're strategically important. They're economically important. They're culturally important. Um, and so you, you have to address what happens in the displacement of this. And I think that's that's maybe the more important question. How do we take care of people that, um, you know, seem to have been left behind as economies change? But I don't think the change in the economy is due to a trade imbalance. Trade imbalance may be symptomatic of what's happening of innovation in the world and fast-moving technological change. So we just have to perhaps come up with better ways to address displacement for, for everybody, and you look at the sort of the middle class, um, to paint with a very broad brush, the middle class in the U.S. has suffered a lot of um, income stagnation and, and displacement. And so there's a question, what do we do with it? But, but I think that displacement likely would have occurred regardless of a trade policy that, you know, yeah, we had cheap imports coming in, but there was a long-term change from manufacturing to, say, information and service providing going on in the economy. So it was, in some ways, perhaps a matter of time. Now, I think strategically it's important. We, we should have a domestic steel industry. We better have um, some self-sufficiencies. And I can understand why politicians might think that's important. So then you go ahead and address them. 
that way? How do we how do we then in that case subsidize a domestic industry? But let's be clear, that's probably what we're doing. We're subsidizing it um, for for maybe various very valid political or economic reasons. But um, you know, sort of free market capitalism makes makes for some tough choices. Yeah, it's interesting. I was listening to Jonah Goldberg's podcast, the guy who's an editor for the National Review, and he was talking with somebody who's a, a, a international economics kind of expert, and he was saying that you know he disagreed with Jonah was saying he disagreed with Pat Buchanan, sort of mercantilist kind of trade war position. But even though he disagreed with it, you could understand several decades ago how even though I thought it was wrongheaded, it, it was at least feasible in that you could make a lot of stuff here or there. But he's like, now it's just, even if you believe in it, it's not feasible, right? Because we just, we are so interdependent that for the United States to go back to sort of single sourcing so many things, right? Like, I mean, it, it, you know, like, like single, like you've managed to single source a chocolate bar in Ghana, right? Like there, but you know, which is is a feat. I mean, to, if you had to single source everything in Ghana, I mean, what would, I mean, that would be really difficult. And even in a country like the United States, which is incredibly prosperous, there, there's so many things that are just impossible to single source, right? Oh, that's absolutely as as diverse as the U.S. geography is. It's really hard to single source. And I should say, you know, it's probably a risk for my company if I if there's a a drought in Ghana, I can't, I would have to pivot from my whole marketing stance on the primacy of Ghanaian beans. I couldn't just bring in beans from another country. So, so single sourcing has, has risks. It means you're, you're not doing proper risk allocation. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's one, it's very hard to single source. Um, and uh, you know, an academic economist would say is you're probably sub optimizing things that you, you should import things that, that you don't have a comparative advantage to do. And so it's not only the manufacturing the incoming, but our ability to export. Um, and, you know, I was just looking at, at some statistics really just this week on, on, on Africa and Ghana in particular, you know, and their, their um, population is quadrupled since independence. So they're very fast growing. While our population is more or less stagnant, you have um, sub-Saharan Africa, you know, is is very fast growing, which means it's a larger market. There are more people. Now, do those people have money to buy things that are if made in the U.S.? Um, you know, still that question is unanswered. But they are huge consumers of, for example, things like our movie and our entertainment and our books and our intellectual property. I'm very popular around the world. And when you look at, you know, even the median age in sub-Saharan Africa is under 20. It's 19 and a half years old. In the U.S., it's um, almost 40, I believe, 38 years old. So you've got a fast-growing young population. These are consumers of tomorrow. So if you've got a manufacturing plant in the United States and you're trying to sell into a stagnant domestic market that's possibly growing 2% a year, and you can go to a place like like Ghana that's growing almost nine percent a year. It's growing four times as fast as the United States. You know, if you really want to have ten percent growth or eight percent annual growth for your domestic U.S. company, you almost have to look to exports. Otherwise, it's a zero sum game. You're trying to beat up on a domestic competitor, or you're you're fighting. Um, a saturation where you've already saturated the market. So I think for domestic U.S. companies, the imperative 
if they are promised Wall Street, for example, if they're publicly traded, that they want a huge growth multiple, 8 or 10% a year, kind of hard to see how you're going to do that unless you have some unbelievable technological advantage, um, patent or some technology that's going to be transformative or disruptive, or you're going to have to export. You're going to just have to find more customers. And fast-growing customers aren't just found in the U.S. anymore. Our fast growth period is over. So is it, so that being the case, then, it seems like escalating tariffs and trade aggression kind of things would hurt companies that rely on exporting for their growth, right? I mean, this is going to make it seemingly harder if if they're facing higher tariffs as they're exporting to although although those tariffs right now i guess are in are focused on china and europe and canada and so i mean i i don't know you know if a place like ghana i mean it seems like there's there's not that kind of thing but it would seem though right that this this will hurt companies that are seeking to grow via export well, i i think it is and i'm I, you know so there's a you know a company here in my home state that's an iconic brand the harley davidson motorcycle company it's been around for over it's, they're going to celebrate, I believe, their 115th year. So, I mean, it's hard to s- claim that they've been anything but an exemplary corporate citizen. Uh, very philanthropic here in Wisconsin and in, in nationwide. Um, they're, they're, they operate at a high end. So already, even with some tariffs in foreign countries that want to prevent the importation of Harley-Davidson motorbikes, there's, there's some modest tariffs. They still compete pretty well. Because people want the brand, they want this particular configuration of a heavy bike, and, and they've got um, you know, a very powerful brand position. So notwithstanding the fact that there's some tariffs in foreign countries that disadvantage imported uh, motorcycles, you know, they compete very well. Um, so I think, you know, their fast growth is going to come, you know, the, the number of riders, if you look at when they slice and dice it, you know, they're trying very hard to get young people, more women, more men, you know, to start riding motorcycles in the U.S. And it's just sort of a stagnant uh, market demographic. I mean, it's high, you know, those that have wanted motorcycles have largely bought one and, and it's, we're not growing fast enough. So they need, they need this export. So, um, um, and then you have their whipsawed too by by importation of foreign steel and things like like this. So it's it's um, um, like most things in the international trade sphere. There's unintended consequences, and I think it's hard for any of us pr- to predict. You know what the unintended consequences? There's the short term. We think we're we're helping a small shoe manufacturer in Maine, maybe the last domestic shoe manufacturer here in Maine, but it. it and it benefits those folks in Maine, to be sure. And we need to, to certainly be sensitive and empathetic to what's going on there. But make no mistake, it's going to have impacts on other other parts of our supply chain and other parts of retailing and ability of people to get cheaper shoes. And what does that mean? And I mean, so this, the, the economy is really complicated. And I guess that's what I've learned in my career just dealing in, in Ghana, especially very complicated, very interconnected in that potential for unintended consequences is enormous. And I don't think people reflect on that nearly enough. And then you wake up and you get these sort of, you know, there's, there's stories that kind of make your, break your heart because it's like, how did we let this happen? Well, I don't think anyone set out to put people out of a job necessarily, but the unintended consequences of some trade policies are 
you know, you're going to put people you didn't, you didn't intend to harm. Um, you've, you've really impoverished them. Yeah. This seems to be where an instance where the politics are easy or, or simple to communicate and relatively easy to get people emotionally worked up about like, we're going to make the best deals. We're going to keep winning. But it's easy to be passionate about the politics and ignorant of the policy. So you have like in your in Wisconsin where Trump got a lot of votes. I mean, here the tariffs are going to hurt a lot of Wisconsin votes or something like I read something like Trump won 90 some percent, 92 percent of the soybean counties producing counties in the country. And those are the people that are getting crushed. I mean, I, I was listening to a, a podcast on Vox where they were a couple weeks ago where they're talking about this. This is exciting. This tanker is racing to get to China before midnight when the soybean tariffs went up so they could get in under the wire, you know, and this massive shipment of soybeans. So you, you have people that get passionate about the politics and then the, the policies wind up being kind of against their own interests. Yeah. Oh, I think that's exactly right. And that's this sort of this unintended consequence. Um, you know, it felt good at the moment. Um you know, to lash out and throw up some, some trade barriers. But I think um, I go back to this very soft-spoken, very sort of academic and bookish Canadian diplomat that spent, you know, eight years in hotel rooms negotiating kind of quietly on these very wonky quantitative statistics. If it was that easy, you know, there'd be a different way to do it. You could have two people banging their fists in a room. But the fact is to do these trade deals well, a lot of smart people from, a, from all the countries involved, were working pretty hard at it. Um, but I think all of them had the notion that if we get it right, the pie gets bigger. It's not a zero-sum game where I'm there's one pie, it's one size, and everything I get means you get a little bit less. I, the whole promise and premise of international trade is it grows the pie. We don't just split it up differently. We, we grow it and... Um, so everyone stands a chance to benefit. And I think it also goes back to what are we really competitive at? Um, and you look at countries that are really competitive. As in, I always look at the Netherlands, which is sort of a small country, has very few natural resources, has this huge issue with flooding in, in, in seawater, inundating you know, the, the entire country. Um, high you know, social safety net. So it's a relatively high tax um, high education system, high health care, high standard of living, you know, they, they shouldn't have a lot of competitive advantages in international trade. And yet you look around there, some of the preeminent traders, and you, this goes back through history. Well, they've used the fact that they're on water to, to build up a good logistics infrastructure and very and wisdom in trading. They, they have outstanding schools where they teach people, you know, fluency in many of the world's top languages, you know, including English. So their students grow up to be able to negotiate in many languages and head up multinational companies. And so when you look at what a competitive advantage is, it's not that you maybe have uranium or oil shale deposits underground, but what do you do with your human capital and how do you choose to invest in it and make make that one of the things you compete on, not necessarily cheap labor, um, but intelligent labor and, and trained labor. Um, and I'm, I'm struck, too, when I sit in sort of business councils. I mean, the biggest concern for most manufacturers is lack of trained workers and the shortages that they foresee as 
baby boomers retire. And you can see we're going to be short 200,000 welders, for example, and, and, and these sort of huge numbers of skilled tradespeople. Um, so on the one hand, you know, we shouldn't have an unemployment problem. Maybe we have a training problem. Maybe we have an education problem. But, you know, there's a lot of shortages of labor in this country. So when we talk about displacement of people, um, it may be from what you did last week is to earn a living. But what you could do next week or next year seems to be, um, we're lucky enough that it seems to be that there are some choices. So it's a retraining issue. It's an education issue. It's maybe freedom of travel. You, you, you move from one city to another city that's got more, more um, opportunity. But I think the U.S. is very good about that. There are some countries where it's not easy to travel from one city to the next. Uh, we, we allow that. So we have a, lots of competitive advantages vis-a-vis -vis other countries in the world why we should weather these periods of top fast technological change, you know, better than most. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going, and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald samantha blythe David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. I had a, a, a guy on the podcast uh, last week named Ken Barnes. He wrote this book called Redeeming Capitalism. And, and his, his book is wonderful. And he has this great section on Adam Smith. And he was talking about how, because you mentioned how wealth, it's, it's not a zero sum game. And he was talking about how Smith's, brilliant insight was that all in this mercantilist age people thought that a nation's wealth was just what they had in their coffers and he's like no no wealth is what you have in your sort of gross domestic product i mean he doesn't use those terms okay but above sub, 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 what's required for subsistence that's your wealth and so and it is not zero sum you can create more and you can i wonder how much someone like donald trump coming from a sort of the sort of tabloidy New York real estate market does see things as zero sum, right? Because if I don't get that, that development contract, someone else does, you know, like it, it, where, you know, there's only so much real estate to go around, you know, in, in a place like New York. And maybe that that's a kind of framework that, that doesn't suit itself to understanding the global economy where, where it's not a zero sum game. Yeah. That's interesting, Scott. And I think, well, you know, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, 
you know, there's only one piece of land, a plot of land, someone's going to get it. It's you or me. So it is a sort of a very binary, um, at least in the short term, it looks like a binary choice. Um, you sign a lease for new space. Uh, you know, one tenant's going to get that space. Five people can't sort of share it. So, so there's sort of, a, it's a very narrow negotiating sphere. But if you're trying to build up um, a series of assets or risk allocation, you wouldn't hold just real estate. You maybe you'd look a little more broadly at, at how the whole economy works. So, I mean, there's something to be said for that. Um, and a lot has to do with also velocity of money. The more a mercantilistic society, you know, trades, in exchanges dollars for services or food or restaurants or entertainment, you know, the better it is. That same dollar moves faster through the economy, and that velocity is a creator of wealth um, above, as you, as you described, you know, the subsistence level. So I think there's something there. I think it's a way of looking at things. Um, but if listen, if you're you went, you own a piece of property, you know, your worldview is that piece of property. So I think what we have is is all well and good to talk about how a big economy works, but it, you know, in every given pace, in any given place, it's, you know, what was it? Um, was it Bill Clinton said it's the economy stupid? You know, that's the whole campaign was the economy stupid, and it's <laughs> yeah. and it's your economy, my economy, your sky. You know, and so these are very personal, and so we can talk about it in the abstract on one hand, and yet, um, uh, you know, so I look in my own family. So we had we used to have a, a sweater business. And we used to manufacture all our our sweaters in the in the Midwest, in in Wisconsin, and in the Northeast. There were places in Maine and in Western Massachusetts. There were old mill towns on the rivers, and this is where we sourced our goods. This was in the like nineteen thirties and forties and fifties. And then a lot of those mills went down. They were all union shops, and then they all moved down south to Alabama and to Mississippi and to Georgia, and they were largely non-union places. And a lot of people in the Northeast sort of groused about, oh, we lost these jobs to a low-cost labor market down south, non-unionist. And so there was displacement. Um, and then, you know, about 10 years later, all those jobs went offshore to Asia, a lot of the apparel jobs. And then you saw everyone in the South who was, you know, 10 years previously celebrating the fact that they had won these jobs from the Northeast and brought them to the South. Now those disappeared offshore. Now all of a sudden it's, 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 it's your problem or it's my problem, you know? So this, these things are all relative. They're sort of time sensitive. So in any given space, I, you know, I, I understand it's the human condition that, um, the displacement of my job hits me disproportionately, and I, I may vote accordingly. But writ large, we should look that, you know, today I might be popping champagne over my good business deal, but next week I'm going to be crying in my beer. And the guy who's crying in his beer this week may be popping champagne two weeks from now or two years from now. And so we, we maybe ought to look a little more empathetically on the, on the entire system and realize that things have been flow and there are, are times when certain businesses are in their ascendancy and other times when they're they're not, and and uh, you know, I just wish we'd find a way to take a little better care of each other um, um, when we can afford to do it. Because I think it it you know it kind of goes around and comes around, and it sounds like a platitude, but that's how economies work. They're pretty complicated that way. And um, um, you know, you see a place as impoverished as Detroit was, well, it's got cheap real estate. So you see a tech boom, you see a lot of companies relocated just because it was, it is now like dirt cheap real estate. And so, so it's going to come back, 
But boy, did it have to go through a, an ebb and a flow to get back where it's going to be a much more diverse, probably a much more stable and, and possibly a more vibrant economy than it was at the heyday of the General Motors and Ford and, and, and Chrysler plants. It sounds like what you're saying is that the dynamic and sometimes chaotic nature of the free market capitalist economy, it creates tons of wealth, but it also creates winners and losers. And, and government, it, it's, it, it seems like more of a blunt instrument oftentimes than a scalpel, right? It's good at taking money and then redistributing it, spending it and redistributing it. It would be better if we focused on, if we could afford it, training and helping dislocated workers and offering services, you know, and, and, and the safety net. Government's good at that stuff. It's not good at picking winners and losers. I mean, you think about Obamacare, which got tons of people new healthcare, but man, I mean, just building the website was a struggle for the federal government. <laughs> like, you know, that, that, that there's certain things that the government does really well and certain things it doesn't. And so it sounds like the government is better at taking care of the displaced than trying to sort of plan the economy. So displacement. Well, yeah, my own view is, 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 is I think very close to that, Scott, you know, I, I don't think government's pick winners and losers. And, and, and you're with good reason, not because they're in, incompetent or, or not set up, but look at even venture capitalists. Venture capital fund, if they have 10 deals, eight will fail, seven or eight will fail, you know, one or two will hit it big. And, and one or two, you know, will maybe break even. So they have, they're running at a 70 to 80% failure rate. And these people whose whole business model, their whole training and talent is to try to pick winners and losers, and they get it wrong seven times out of 10 on average. You know, so government is, you know, no shame in it for not being able to pick winners and losers. It's just not what they're ever going to do well. And because it's a really tough game to, to, to win at over time real well. So I think, um, um, you know, whether it's government saying Solyndra and, and, and clean energy is the future, or it's saying we, you know, let's drill the, the, Arctic Wildlife you know, Refuge, National Wildlife, which it, is really hard to say at any given day what's going to be the, the winning solution. They're best to probably stay out of it, let a, our, our capitalist system make these sorts of decisions, and then try to soften the edges when, when either the economy and capitalism gets it wrong or there's these huge displacements or training, or at least provide for people to relearn and retrain. Um, so they can have interesting and varied um, and viable economic careers over a lifetime. And, you know, beyond that, then it's, you know, let people do what they will with their talents and their work ethic and things like that. But, I, um, um, you know, picking, picking winners and losers is hard, even for investment banks, even for mutual funds. You look at, at you know, these returns, it's, it's a, you know, very few people do this well. So, so I think government should take its cue and probably not try to do that well. You mentioned earlier that that certain a lot there are a lot of sort of bean to bar chocolate companies in the United States, but they're doing all the value added once they import the beans. And you had the term value added, which a lot of countries have value added taxes. And in the past, Republican tax reform and cut, Paul Ryan wanted a value added tax, right? That was part which would have softened the. It would have probably made it more closer to revenue neutral. I mean, I'm wondering what, why, what do you think about value added taxes? Why do so many countries have them? Why are we averse to them? Is it, you know, as, as an international business guy, you like them, you're not a good thing, bad thing. You know, it's, I think in, in general taxes that are, um, 
not regressive, but are they're progressive. So, so taxes on sales of things seem to make sense because if you've made a decision that you can afford whatever it is you're buying, um, and it's then discretionary. You, you're not taxed on, um, you know, something was we, you know, like real estate. Sometimes it's hard to extract a value out of it. it. It grows over time, and you're taxed on it, even though your income you can derive from your the house you live in. You know, doesn't change as much as the value of your house goes up. So value-added taxes, which are really attached to discretionary spending, seem to me to make a lot of sense because they're more immediately tied to what a person can dis- their discretionary spending. If you want to spend it on a yacht or going out to dinner or whatever it is, it's let the consumer decide. So I think that they tend to make a lot of sense vis-a-vis a lot of the other ways we we sort of tax things um and and um you know, real estate being being one that seems um a tough you know home in in our state a lot of our schools are funded by by your real estate taxes um in some people if you've had your house 30 or 40 years your house has tripled or quadrupled in value your income may not have and so you you almost can't afford to stay in the house that you've owned for 30 years and and so that's the downside of of something that's not a progressive tax um and i so i i, I tend to say, I, you know i think they're probably a very good thing um um they tend to be big numbers. And I so you know, when you travel abroad and then you go to the airport and you take your value added tax and it's 17% or, you know, sometimes they're often close to 20%. That seems like a big gulp. So, and I think that would be kind of a hard, how one eases into a value added tax um, is a different question. It's maybe more of a political question, but I think they've got a lot of merit. If you were advising like a presidential candidate and they're saying, hey, look, you're a national business guy. I'm running, you know, in 2020. What what would you say? Like, what would you say? Hey, here's here's you know we're we're in a relatively prosperous economy. That could change in two years. But I mean, what? How would you tell a candidate this is this is the sort of vision you sell to the American electorate that is one of uh, of real prosperity that that well, I, I know think works. one is that we our economy is said, but we can compete well internationally. I mean, we shouldn't be afraid of the competition. We have, you know, outstanding um, secondary and tertiary schools. Our colleges and university are, are fantastic. It's where everyone in the world wants to come and study. This is a comparative advantage for us. We have freedom of movement. We are relatively lightly regulated. If you look at the European Union and the infrastructure, the administrative and political infrastructure of The Hague, you know, it's, it seems to Americans, you know, very burdensome. Well, we don't have that. Yes, we have the federal government, you have state governments, but it's far more modest than most other developed economies that we compete against. So the first thing is we can compete in the world and we ought to embrace it. I think we ought to try to make our education system more internationally focused, try to be a little more multilingual, um, so we can go out and compete in the world better. I think we should open up our schools and universities to some foreign students and have them have their their governments pay full boat, full freight to let those students in. But they would, I think, learn the possibility and the sort of magic and the um, this the, the wonderful potential of the United States. They'll go back to their home countries and probably want to trade with U.S. companies in the future. They'll be well disposed. So I think there's a a an international diplomatic 
benefit that accrues to us by ha- being relatively open, certainly at the educational stage with, um, you know, and I benefited from a student exchange um, program called AFS. And I think these things are wonderful. It brings young people here. And it also informs communities in the U.S. about um, what, how foreign countries, you know, look like, uh, how they behave. And, and maybe they're going to be far less threatening than if you only see some clips on, on, on social media. Um, and so that's what I would is start with the premise that, listen, we don't need special protections necessarily. We can go out and compete well and hard, and we have to figure out what it is we're good at. And there are many things, and we should just then go out and do it and be much more aggressive in terms of um, letting people into our country and, you know, letting new ideas into our country. Let me, let me rephrase that a little bit, because I think we have been a country that um, monetizes things well for lack of a better word. We figure out what's smart in the world and we figure out ways to apply it here and we figure out um, how to export things. We've been good at this for years and years and years. And I think uh, there's no reason to think we won't be outstanding at it uh, going forward. So I, I would say, you know, don't, we've, we've made international trade to be a little bit of a bogeyman for all the ills and the displacement we see in our economy. I think what I'd whisper to a candidate is some of this displacement was bound to happen as we moved from an analog to a digital into whatever a, an artificial intelligence economy. There's going to be displacements. It has really not so much to do with cheap imports as it does with fast-changing technology. And in any case, even if we had closed borders, we would have to figure out how to take care of people displaced by the inevitability of technological change. Yeah, I mean, it, decade, you know, decades and decades later, we don't sit around driving around the highways thinking, "Oh man, it's so sad that the horse and buggy people were put out of business." I mean, ev- you know, eventually, we 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 don't want to sell. You know, like it, it is hard in the short run, but but these things make life better and long term. Right. And, be and so, what do you do with that last generation of horse and buggy people? Do you take care of them? Do you throw them out? I don't, you know, that's that's a that's where we should have the attention paid, but. Um, stopping cars on roads, there was an inevitability of that was going to happen once, once, once that sort of value proposition became clear to everyone and they became affordable, you know, those days were numbered, uh, for the horse and buggy. So, so, you know, I think it's more, um, you know, and empathy is not in fashion now. Um, maybe it's considered a soft skill or what, but you know, we, if we were empathetic, we would figure out ways to address this without demonizing the person that's you know, receiving the benefit of the empathy this week, uh, because I think next week it could be you or me receiving the benefits of the empathy. So we, you know, I think we should try to engender how do economies take care of displacement? Um, I guess in a purely pure free market economic, those people are quote unquote, you know, they, they have lost the game. And what happens to them is just sort of a casualty, um, a determinism, part of the determinism of capitalism economy. You know, a lot of people, you know, have a charitable instinct in this country. So how do we take care of them? Is it going to be public sector doing it? Is it going to be private sector philanthropy and charitable intent? I'm not sure a combination of both, which is sort of what we have now. But I think let's put that into the debate and throw it on the table and say, let's, you know, here's the problem. Here's a couple ways to solve it. What's what's maybe the best way to do it as opposed to just ignoring the problem, which I think we've done or creating blame for what caused the problem. You know, at the end of the day, you have a situation with a lot of people out of work at a stage in life where it's not so easy to retrain 
what are we going to do about it? What's, what's kind of the fair, affordable way we're going to deal with it? And, and I think that would be a productive place to start the debate rather than pretend that's, that's not the problem. I, I would hope people on both sides of that spectrum understand I think that's what the problem is. The solutions, you know, are multifarious. So your message, your economic message is, hey, bet on America. Let's be optimistic. We can compete. And and the importance of empathy. That sounds like a winning strategy. (laughs) Um, I would hope so. And I think it's it's I hope it's not that radical of a strategy. I mean, it's it's what we do. I think we've um, we are a polyglot nation. You know, when we, when we, you know, people have sort of historically looked and they'll say, oh, you know, Scandinavian, these sort of quasi-socialist, you know, safety nets. Well, you know, they were smaller countries. They were more homogenous. It was possibly easier to get buy-in that you support people that look like you, that are ethnically the same. That's not our country. You know, so we, you know, we've embraced this sort of capitalist system. It has done very well for the United States. It will continue to do well. Um, but I don't think empathy is um, at all at odds with capitalism. Um, and, and so inserting it into the debate seems, seems appropriate. And then maybe that softens the edges and, um, and allows capitalism to thrive as opposed to maybe turning into something that it, that it isn't. And that's threatening to a lot of people on, 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 say, the right side of the political spectrum. They don't want to see the U.S. be a quote-unquote socialist state. All right, fine. Let's make it a capitalist one. But where does empathy play in that? What are we going to do with the displacement issue? And and so I think hopefully uh, capitalism with um, with empathy is 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 I think maybe the winning strategy for the United States going forward. Well, Steve, you're a capitalist, international businessman with a heart, and you're a great writer. And I appreciate you taking some time to just talk about. Scott, a pleasure. Really, really a pleasure. I'm delighted and, and, and flattered and, um, and wish you and all your listeners well. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great check it out spread the love and goodness if you've found it here also if you could go please 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 it takes like 60 seconds go to itunes and write a review and give it give a rating to the podcast it really really helps especially as things are getting off the ground and if you want to consider becoming a patreon sponsor you can just go right to the link on the podcast page giveandtake.fireside.fm you can find all the information there Thanks to Stephen for coming back on the podcast. Check out his book, if you haven't already, A Brony and the Chocolate Factory, an unlikely story of globalization and Ghana's first gourmet chocolate bar. And thanks again to you for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.